When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. So while Kevin McCarthy tries to corral Republicans on the debt deal, Ron DeSantis is in Iowa marking the first big speech of his presidential campaign and taking aim at the former president. Well, now he's attacking me over some of these disagreements, but I think he's doing it in a way that the voters are going to side with me. All right. Well, our panel is going to explain how all of this will play with the national audience. Plus, a new study shows that the first 45 words a police officer says during a traffic stop of a black driver can predict how that encounter will end. I'll talk to one of the researchers who discovered the warning signs of a police stop that's likely to escalate. And remember the fifth grade Florida teacher who was investigated for showing a Disney movie with a gay character in it? Well, as we speak, there is a heated school board meeting going on where parents and students have a lot to say about all of this. And that teacher is going to join us straight from the board meeting. Just a reminder, here's the controversial scene. Any sweethearts waiting for you back home, huh? Ah, there it is. <laughs> Who is it? Uh, it's no one. Uh-uh. Diazzo. His name is Diazzo. Diazzo, huh? I really like him a lot. I just don't know how to tell him. Well, that explains everything. But let's begin with Governor Ron DeSantis' first big speech of his presidential campaign. Here with me tonight, we have presidential historian Doug Brinkley, Natasha Alford from The Grio, Coleman Hughes, host of the Conversations with Coleman podcast, and Scott Jennings, who worked for President George W. Bush. Great to have all of you here. Okay, so first, um, let me play for you guys what Ron DeSantis just said. Um, So this is his first big speech. He's also, I believe, taking some questions from reporters there. And so he was um, talking about how President Trump had gone after Ron DeSantis for his COVID response. And he had said even uh, Governor Cuomo of New York had handled COVID much better than DeSantis. And here's DeSantis's response to him. If you say Cuomo did a better job with COVID than Florida did, first of all, that's not what he used to say. This is like new. Like six months ago, he would have never said that, right? He used to say how great Florida was. Hell, his whole family moved to Florida under my governorship. Are you kidding me? Okay, so Doug, beyond the entertainment value of watching um, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis go after each other, how will all this play nationally? Um, I think DeSantis had such a terrible rollout on Twitter. I mean, a disaster. Uh, Iowa is a time for redemption, and he framed everything he did on tonight on American revival, uh, meaning he's trying to win over evangelical voters. He's trying to strip them away from Donald Trump. And, I, you know, Iowa's going to be a big deal, the caucus, for the, the Republicans. Uh, if anybody can beat Donald Trump in Iowa, they, meaning DeSantis or anybody else, they have a chance to be the nominee. And coming number two out of Iowa is important. So I think DeSantis tonight, for the first time, seems to be in real time taking some swipes at Trump, particularly saying, I would have fired 
Fauci immediately, playing the apprentice thing. I, why did you keep a guy like Fauci on? And you could see that Fauci's going to become an issue. He's suddenly baggage for Donald Trump, Fauci, in the Republican sphere. Okay, well, we have a live uh, shot right now of the response right now. That's Oh, this, this is on Capitol Hill. So these are Republicans coming out of the debt deal. So we are waiting to hear what has happened now with all of these negotiations and what's happening in terms of the vote with the debt deal. Um, let's see if they're going to tell us something right now. Um, Thank you, everybody, for your patience uh, for being here tonight. House Republicans just concluded a very productive and respectful conference meeting. Members from all across the conference shared their support for this important bill, and they shared their support for Speaker McCarthy's strong and effective leadership. This is a win for the American people and future generations. Last November, the American people sent a message strongly that they did not support the failed policies and reckless spending of single-party Democrat rule. The country entrusted House Republicans with our vision of a commitment to America to deliver results and rein in out-of-control spending, causing crippling inflation. The Fiscal Responsibility Act is a historic step to restoring fiscal sanity and holding Washington accountable. This will be the largest deficit reduction in history. For the first time in a decade, spending year over year will be cut while still providing critical funding for veterans and national defense. This deal claws back tens of billions in unspent COVID funds, the largest rescission combined in the history of Congress. And this deal will lift millions of Americans out of poverty by strengthening work requirements. Since earning the majority, House Republicans have been underestimated by the media every day. We've been underestimated by the media this week. But we will be tireless in keeping our promises and delivering results for the American people. And as we do every week, we're going to highlight a freshman, and I'm pleased to introduce Derek Van Orden from Wisconsin. Thank you. The world's oldest Okay. So that was just uh, Congresswoman Stefanik speaking about how they have reached this deal. Um, We'll hear more as soon as uh, Speaker McCarthy comes out. Natasha, your thoughts as you listen. Um, well, you know, it's it's so interesting. I was wondering whether they would unite because I think that the American people have seen so many moments of the extreme factions of the GOP taking over, right? Out talking other members of the party, uh, sort of bringing all of the attention on them, even though their message is about we're doing this for the American people. So it felt like the stakes were pretty high for the GOP to figure this out, um, lest this be a moment where Democrats can you know, sort of spin it and say you are essentially putting our entire country at risk for uh, this ideological um, opportunity, right, to just sort of beat beat the drum. Um, what's interesting to me is the the work requirements uh, for, for the neediest among us, um, expanding work requirements. It just seems like something that at a time like this, when people are still recovering from the effects of COVID uh, and the pandemic, It sends an interesting message about what the priorities are, about who matters. There are exemptions in there for veterans, uh, for those who are houseless. But it it just seems like it's such an interesting thing to make sure that that was a priority, that you put people to work when there have been mixed studies and results about whether that actually helps to lift people out of poverty. And and why choose that as opposed to maybe taxing the wealthy or or, or doing something else? So... um, They've united at a, at a key moment, but again, there's, there's an opportunity for Democrats to highlight this is what their priorities are. Scott, as you know, there are a handful of holdouts. The Freedom Caucus doesn't like this deal. Um, so let me just play for you earlier what they had said about how much faith they had in this. 
How much, uh, I mean, how much confidence do you have in the speaker right now? None. Zero. What basis is there for confidence? Is the speaker lying about the way he's characterizing this bill? Yes, he's lying. If there were to be a, a departure from that specific commitment to have a majority of the majority, uh, then I think that would be trouble for, for the speaker. So Scott, does, does now their obstruction matter? No, there's no drama here. It's going to pass by wide margins, I think, in both the House and the Senate. These people that are criticizing Kevin McCarthy, like he can go out and order the president of the United States to have a position or order the Democrats who control the Senate to have a position. They need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and understand one thing. The reason that you don't like this deal is not because Kevin McCarthy. It's because Donald Trump lost the White House and Donald Trump's handpicked candidates for the Senate lost the Senate. That's why you don't like this deal. So think ahead here. This is about politics and whether or not you can win elections. It's a miracle that Kevin McCarthy has gotten anything at all, and this is a deal any Republican should be proud to vote for. But some people are in Washington to posture, and some people are there to govern. Kevin McCarthy is there to govern, and he's doing the best he can, controlling one leg of a three-legged stool. I think he's doing a pretty darn good job. And the real issue here is that if you want to do better, win elections. That's the bottom line. Coleman, I mean, there are people who think that compromise equals defeat. No, not at all. I mean, the only people that think that are the super high, hardline ideologues who would have been happy to see us default rather than, you know, look, this is our system, right? We have a Democratic president. Uh, GOP controls the House. So you're going to end up with a compromised position. This, you're not going to end up, right? They say in a negotiation, if both, if one side leads completely happy, that's not a negotiation, right? So what you're going to end up with is a situation where the extremists on both sides are upset and that's actually a good moderate outcome for the country. And we uh, get to issue more debt. And that's 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 a good thing. And what do you think about what they have had to compromise on, which is that, that they're apparently going to keep spending levels the same for 2024 as they are this year. And yeah. they're still wrangling about the Pentagon um, bet budget. Um, but as Natasha you know, pointed out, they had lots of different priorities and they chose... Right some that won't work for everybody. Well, who knows what they had to give up in order to get what, what they wanted. And I think from, from what I just heard, they're doing a bit of a spin job by saying they're really cutting spending. They're not really cutting it. They're just not increasing it year over year. That's not the same as going back to pre-COVID spending levels. I understand why they're doing that spin, but we should understand what it actually is. Yeah, Doug? I think um, Joe Biden did a masterful job of getting this pulled off. I mean, it for, you know, and it's for two years. So you don't have to worry about the debt now for 2024. It frees us from being, uh, uh, you know, having go go through this in the middle of an election cycle. And it's, uh, and the American people won. I mean, we're sending these people to Washington to represent us and get things done. And I think history will teach this Biden McCarthy, these two kind of Catholic old style leaders in certain ways uh, that they formed a sort of a ability to communicate with each other. And you notice Biden didn't grandstand a lot. He played it very low. It might be they're going to call him basement Joe Biden, the Republicans, but he's starting to get a lot of wins and getting this done is, is big for Biden. Scott, is that how you see it? Well, I mean, with all due respect to the historian, the recent history of Joe Biden on this debt ceiling is for six months, he said, I will not negotiate. I will accept nothing but a clean debt ceiling. He trotted his press secretary out every day with that message. And at the end of the day, the reason this negotiation took place is that Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans in the House passed a bill. They brought Joe Biden to the table kicking and screaming every day, week after week. There were no talks, nothing, no meetings. Biden insisted there would not be any negotiations at all. And what happened is 
He had to negotiate. And there's a whole checklist of things here that any Republican would be glad to do. Clawing back the IRS money, clawing back unspent COVID money. Yes, the work requirements. Oh my gosh, we're going to make able-bodied adults work for a living. Oh, be still my beating heart. I mean, these are great things for Republicans. They wouldn't have happened if Joe Biden had had his way. So I really think this is a great win for the underestimated, often underestimated Kevin McCarthy. And I think Biden looks foolish, truthfully, for saying what he said for so long and then having to go to the table. Oh, look, this is just another win for Biden. I mean, he had the American Rescue Plan passed. He had the Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS. He's being able to do bipartisan um, policymaking through Congress to, you just said, these are like wingnuts on the right that you just threw under the bus as crazies. And Biden's had to deal with them. And his style of laying back, laying low has worked. That doesn't mean that I'm criticizing McCarthy. I'm not. I think he served his uh, party well. So I think we could look at both McCarthy and Biden as winners out of this process. That's interesting because they certainly are acting that way. I mean, they both are taking a victory lap on this, um, that they've reached, it sounds like, a compromise. So we'll hear more when Speaker McCarthy comes out. Thank you all for that. There's also a school board meeting going on right now in Florida that's very heated. One of the topics is this teacher who showed her fifth grade class an animated Disney movie with a gay character in it. We have a big update next. The Hernando County, Florida School Board is holding a heated meeting right now after investigating a teacher who showed the Disney film Strange World to her fifth grade class. Now, this is an animated movie about a family of explorers, and it features a teenage character who is gay. One parent of a child in the class who also happens to be a member of the school board complained about this movie, and that triggered not only a school board investigation of the teacher, but a review by the Florida Department of Education. Then another teacher launched a petition to have that school board member, Shannon Rodriguez, removed from the school board. And tonight they're all haggling over all of that. My panel is here with me. Also joining us is the writer... Hari Kanda Balu, great to have you back, all right? Uh, okay, also, we have that fifth grade teacher who we've spoken to two weeks ago, Jenna Barbie. She's the one who showed that movie. She's on the phone with us straight from tonight's meeting. She just left to come out and talk to us. Jenna, great to talk to you. So tell us what's happening in this school board meeting. How heated is it? Well, it's pretty chaotic. You have uh, two school board members who are on one side with a small group called Moms for Liberty that uh, is very um, anti-everyone. And then you have a large group of everybody else and the other three school board members who are fighting for equality among our students. And one of these school board members, as we've discussed, her name is Shannon Rodriguez. She's the person who complained when you showed that Disney movie and now there's this petition to remove her. Has her fate been decided yet? No, so I mean, that's not really how this works. So in order to do that, you'd have to go through this uh, voting process where you have to get, I'm pretty sure it's like 8% of the votes or something like that. Um, I'm not really into politics like that, but uh, it's, it's not that easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And do you, do you have any sense of whether or not she's gonna lose her position? Um, so the most immediate action would be if the governor took her off. But I mean, he's kind of 
right on board with her perspective. So. Mm-hmm. Um, here's her perspective. Let me play for you what she said tonight at this school board meeting about why, you know, she doesn't like basically what you did in showing the film as well as the other curriculum that she th- thinks is being taught in, in the school district. We do not want to have equity and inclusion in our schools. We want to keep our schools traditional the way that they were. We don't want any of the woke or the indoctrination. And with that being said... Easy. Thank you. And it's the adults that are propagating the racism. It's not the kids doing this. It's teaching racism. They're repackaging CRT and they're just renaming it. So if you want your kid to learn certain beliefs, send them to that type of school. But at a public school that is supported by the taxpayer, that should be teaching education, not indoctrination. So I'll never agree with any of these type of programs. I'm not going there, and that's not something that I think that our kids are going to ever benefit from. And like I said, I was elected to support our kids and to make sure that our kids get a good education and an education without any of the indoctrination. Okay, Jenna, your thoughts? Your response to that? Well, it's not indoctrination. Like me showing the movie, the movie had a character who talked about his crush. So it's just showing that it's an accepted thing if you're gay. I don't see what's the problem with that. There's That's not indoctrination. Indoctrination is telling people that they have to believe a set of values or that a set of values are not okay if you take them away. Indoctrination isn't representing equality and representing everyone. And so what were the students? I understand that there were some students who got up to speak. What were they saying tonight? Um, Every single student that got up to speak was highly frustrated on the situation, talking about how they deserve to have a choice and that taking away their right to be represented when they're part of these communities is not okay. It's telling them that they're not only they don't that not only they don't belong, but that there are adults in power who are telling them that they're not accepted and it's not okay to be who they are. I mean, you and I talked before two weeks ago, but how are you feeling tonight about the fact that one parent can have a complaint and it, you know, sparks an investigation and you have to rethink, you know, your curriculum, you have to rethink your career choice. The fact that one parent is allowed to have that kind of power. What what are your thoughts on that? It's scary for all teachers. I mean, they want more teachers to teach, but they're not allowing teachers to teach. Instead, they think that we can just teach math, science, social studies, and reading. But in order to connect the curriculum to real life, we have to be able to branch off and connect the topics. 90% of the socialization that these students get is at school. And by telling teachers that they just have to stick to what the textbook says, I mean, it's, it's literally impossible Yeah. I remember you telling us that you wanted to show that movie because you're very into environmentalism. You're into earth sciences. That's what the theme of the movie is. But again, did you know that you were breaking the guidelines when you showed that movie? No. So I didn't even know about the Don't Say Gay Bill. I didn't know that it had been extended. I didn't know anything about it until all of this happened. And I didn't technically. So our process in place per administration was to have a signed parent permission slip at the beginning of the school year. I had that. Two days later, they made it to where every single movie has to have a signed approval brought to admin with a signature. That was because of my situation. And, um, you know, Florida, I mean, from our impression outside of Florida, it's so stringent 
about these rules. Why wasn't there a memo issued to every classroom from the governor about what your new guidelines were? So I, I guess because it's I, I don't I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if it's because it just our county didn't see it as a big deal or something. I'm not I honestly do not know the answer to that question. But you so. never got anything. You never got a memo. You never got instructions of exactly no. what you could do or show. Yeah, no, but I think that the whole state is kind of confused on what exactly that that bill or law represents. Yeah, understood. Uh, well, Jenna Barbie, we'll let you get back in there. Thank you very much for taking the time to tell us what's happening Thank right you so now. Much. Have yeah, a really beautiful evening. Thank you. You too. And we'll be continue to watch that um, school board meeting. Let me bring in my panel now. Guys, great to have you here. So, uh, Hari, I'll start with you because you're new to our panel. Yes. So very interesting because this is what we hear from teachers saying that it's almost like they're self-censoring. There's so much yes. confusion in Florida about what they are allowed to do that they decide, well, I just won't touch it. I just won't touch it. I won't show any movie that I was going to. I won't bring up the conversation because I don't really know what I'm allowed to do. I mean, first of all, I'm assuming the next school board meeting is when they ban dancing. Um, all they, like the teacher did, it wasn't even about the acceptance uh, of gay people. It was literally gay people exist. That's all that particular scene is showing us. Gay people exist. And the idea that people have an issue with gay people existing in a Disney film, yet they're good with uh, talking lobsters and mermaids and candles that dance, like that they're, they have an issue with. Like when Beauty and the Beast came out, you're not going to boycott that? That clear act of bestiality that's against <laughs> God's will? Yet this is an issue. This is, this is what they want to... I mean, it's also cruel to all those children who are LGBTQ in that school who are struggling to exist, who are struggling to come out, and you have a, a school board debating whether they should be allowed to exist in school. Let me go to our favorite former teacher, oh my <laughs> Natasha. Goodness. I call upon you so often for this. So this school board is, as you can imagine, devolving into these heated debates where students are standing up and saying the same thing that Hari just said. Like, you're, you're trying to stamp out my existence, basically. That's what this, well, I have it for you. Let me just play quickly what a couple of the students just said. I'm usually the quiet one, however, now I finally feel the need to make my voice heard. The school board has said over and over again that they want what's best for their students. If this is true, why are you allowing rules that make your students feel more and more unwelcome? Instead of representing me and other LGBTQ plus students, because yes, we exist, you instead, you instead have alienated and made us feel as if our entire existence is an issue to you. My existence should not be an issue to you. But come next election season, my vote will be. Wow. The, the children will lead us, right? I listened to that school board member and I just felt this is what anti-intellectualism looks like in America. This is what it looks like when a politician like Ron DeSantis repeats the same talking points again and again. And you have a school board member with power who doesn't truly understand what she's saying. She's talking about indoctrination. She's talking about the woke agenda. All of these things are misrepresentations of the truth. Saying C or CRT is in our classrooms, absolutely not true. But because she heard Ron DeSantis say it, because she heard Donald Trump say it, now she is exercising power at the local level. And this is what we mean when we say that elections matter. We want teachers to be everything. 
Okay, teachers have to put their lives on the line for their children at a time when mass shootings are rampant. So they have to be G.I. Jane in the classroom. But at the same time, they can't show a movie because they could lose their job. It's just it's absolute insanity what we are seeing playing out in our classrooms. And you cannot legislate this. Right. This is a a total violation of what it means to uh you know, the American ideal of freedom that we have, this is the opposite of that. So I think the children are reacting to that. The teachers are reacting to that. And the idea that it was a teacher who started this petition to get the school board member to to stand down makes sense because teachers are on the front lines right now. Coleman, your thoughts? Yeah, I think we should step back for a second and look at how it is that we got here and why we're seeing situations like this. So there was a study of FEC data a couple years back in the Washington Post. They cited it and it found that 80... Among high school teachers, there are 87 Democrats for every 13 Republicans. And among English teachers, it's 97 Democrats for every three Republicans. And among health teachers, it's 99 to 1, right? So there is a big gap between the politics of public school teachers and the politics of the public. So inevitably, that's going to create tension, right? Because teachers are working for the public. There's a values gap. The question is, how do we address that? Is the right way to address that the Ron DeSantis, Christopher Rufo strategy of trying to write laws that ban every idea that conservative parents don't like? No. We're seeing the results of that play out here with this poor teacher that just wanted to show, you know, a, a silly movie with a happen to have a gay character. It's, it's, it's sad. I think the conversation we should be having is how do we get some more political balance among our public sure. school teachers so that situations like this don't have to... How do we to... get more Republicans to want to become school teachers? I mean, that's another question. If, if that um, balance, it does it, if that imbalance exists, we only have 10 seconds. Your thoughts about why this is taking hold across the country? Because of Rick DeSantis making uh, this woke his uh, main issue in Florida has become ground zero. It's the place where they try to um, ban books on Rosa Parks for school kids or a great novelist like Toni Morrison in Florida. And this is just another continuation of the DeSantis war on Disney down there. Thank you very much, friends. Uh, Meanwhile, tonight, there could be answers about how some police stops with black drivers become violent so quickly. That's next. Can the first few words out of a police officer's mouth determine whether a traffic stop escalates to violence? Yes. A new study finds that traffic stops are much more likely to result in a search, handcuffing, or an arrest when police begin with a command to the driver rather than a question. Researchers looked at the body cam footage of 577 stops involving black drivers and found that the first 45 words from an officer are critical. Case in point... The first moments when police approached George Floyd reveal how quickly things can escalate. Let me see your hands. Damn, man. Stay in the I'm car. Sorry. Let me I'm see sorry. your other hand. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me see your other please, hand. Please, please. Both hands. Do Put I, your please, hands please, up right I now. Let I me see your other hand. Put your hand up there. Put your hand up there. Jesus Christ. Keep your hands on the wheel. 
Joining us now, one of the researchers in this study, Eugenia Rowe, an assistant professor of computer science at Virginia Tech. Professor, thanks so much for being here. Since we're all so familiar with that horrifying video, what do you see there? In those, that was 56 seconds that we just played there, but roughly the same, right. 45 seconds. What do you see there in those seconds? Right. So uh, in our work, we discovered that escalated car stops have this unique linguistic signature where the officer starts with an order without explaining the reason for the stop. And this led us to explore if this pattern persisted in stops involving force. Uh, That's why we analyzed the initial moments of the highly publicized encounter you just uh, between George Floyd and the first responding officer that you just saw. And we found that in less than the first 30 seconds of interaction between Floyd and the officer, the officer communicated 57 words over nine speech turns, all of which were physical orders. And despite Floyd's 11 turns of dialogue consisting of apologies, requests for reasons, assertions of innocence, pleas, and expressions of fear, you know, I got shot, I got shot. Each of his dialogue act was met with one singular response and order. And so is it your finding, is it true that when the first 45 words begin with commands instead of questions, you know, often, I mean, I'm sure many of us have been pulled over and it says, uh, where do you live? What are you doing out here? Um, Can I see your license? Um, Where are you headed? Things like that. Is it the command versus the question that's the big distinction? It's not, it, 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 it's the presence of uh, certain dialogue acts uh, versus the absence of others, right? It's the presence of orders uh, in the absence of reason explaining uh, the stop. And for Black drivers, um, that linguistic signature functions as a, predictive, uh, as a predictor of how they perceive the officer, what might happen next, as well as an anticipation and anxiety over whether force will be used on them. That's interesting because I know that part of your study, you had black drivers watch some of these um, exchanges and they their anxiety level just watching it before anything escalated went up when they when it started with commands. So tell us about what their response was watching it. Yes. So. In a study, we had black male uh, adult participants in the United States listen to audio recordings of 10 randomized car stops, five that escalated, five that did not. And we asked about their feelings and predictions of uh, what might happen in each car stop. And when officers began with orders without reasons, uh, participants predicted an escalation in over 80% of cases as opposed to only 37% when officers provided reasons without issuing orders. And further, anxiety over potential use of force was reported in over 80% of the stops initiated with orders but no reason, compared to less than half, 47%, in stops where reasons were given without orders. So, I mean, is your finding that at some point it becomes a vicious cycle? So the first command and the aggressiveness of the first command then escalates the driver's feeling of anxiety and they respond a certain in a certain nervous way because obviously sometimes we see certain drivers run. I mean, is it that it becomes this vicious cycle? So... I I really have to um, emphasize that we control for a variety of factors in our study. The demographics, the gender and race of drivers, the officer, the neighborhood crime statistics, officer stated legal justification for the stop, including the driver's response to the officer. 
we analyze every single uh, response by the driver to the officer's first 45 words in the escalated stops. And our results still hold true even after taking these variables into consideration. Most of these drivers are just responding to the officer's questions, explaining themselves. There is not a single instance in which the driver refuses to comply to the officer's uh, order um, or answer the officer's question. So in other words, these factors, um, uh, you know, neighborhood crime statistics, uh, how the driver reacts to the officer, these factors are not what contributes to escalated outcomes as much as the officer's linguistic signature. Really helpful. Professor, thank you very much for explaining all of that. It's really interesting. Uh, thank you for being here. Our panel is chomping at the bit to get in on this, and we'll be back after this very short break. Okay, so you just heard about that new research showing why the first 45 words that a police officer says during a traffic stop of a black driver can predict how that encounter will end. My panel has a lot to say about this. Natasha, what did you think as you listened to the professor there? I'm going to be anecdotal for a moment because it just, I felt a lot watching that video. I remember being six years old my parents being pulled over, my father not driving, but being asked for his ID and that aggressiveness in the tone of voice of the officer. I remember that at six years old, five, six years old. And years later, having those same experiences as an adult. So what is it about the way that police officers, no matter their color, because again, race, you can still be racist if you are a black officer, when you encounter a black person that you feel this need for aggressiveness, right? That you feel that you don't have to talk to them maybe the way that you would talk to someone else. The drivers feel that. So I'm glad that the study, um, you know, took a formal approach to it. But I think ultimately we're saying that human beings are human beings. (laughs) You feel someone approach you with aggression, distrust, and that can lead to fear, that can lead to anxiety, that can lead to an escalation. Um, So to me, it confirmed what I feel I've always known. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting, Doug, what she was saying. She sort of corrected me there, well, my, my supposition there at the end, where she basically wanted us to know, no, it's the police officers that are escalating. The yes. police officers are escalating it more than the drivers are escalating. And it's just common sense. When anybody has a police officer, if you get pulled over for a traffic ticket, if they're taking a harsh attitude at you, you get rattled. You're not sure what you're going to do. And I think it would, is, is equally bad what happens to uh, Latinos in America. Um, but the fact with sometimes the language barrier and suddenly a policeman comes up and starts shouting something and they don't understand and don't aren't following. And we, we I would love to see a study done on, you know, Mexican-Americans in Arizona, you know, um, California that are constantly being pulled over because of the color of their skin on the thought that they're illegals. And some of them are, are been here four generations Americans, and they're, they're being abused by police in that regard. Yeah, I mean, they were pointing out that it's the linguistics of this, which I think is yeah. fascinating. Hori? I think what frustrated me most is the need for a study like this. You know, it's basically like, here is evidence that racism exists. Like, you were talking about your stories and, like, the anecdotal evidence. Like, I have enough friends with anecdotal evidence, and that means that people aren't listening. People don't believe it until they see it, and we need numbers. Well... I'll let you know when it's racism. That's what I feel like America is saying. And the idea that you need numbers 
to back something that everyone kind of knows, you know, who've ex- who's experienced it, is, is kind of absurd. So th- this study actually isn't about racism. It only dealt with black drivers to begin with. So and that's actually one thing I like about this study is that it's constructive. It's asking the question, what do police officers do wrong and what do they do right to escalate or de-escalate these encounters? So I think a lot more research like this is needed. Now, one complication of this study is that they looked at what drivers said and held that uh, constant, but they didn't look at what drivers or police officers did, right? That's what I'm curious about as well, because half of these encounters, it's not just what you say, it's what you do. So is it, I want to know, does it affect an encounter when a police officer has his hand on his gun to begin with? I'd say yes. Does it, well, well look, we, we all may have our gut instincts, but that's the whole point of this research, right? Does it affect a, an encounter when a driver has their hands in their pockets or, or on the steering wheel? Because all that stuff, knowing that kind of thing, gives me power as a driver to influence an interaction and gives the cops more information, the cops that want to do their best job, more information about how to do it well. Yeah, I think if it's a study about black drivers, though, this is about race in America. I don't think that we can separate those things, right? And as I said before, even, it doesn't matter the color of the police officer. If you have a perception of black bodies as being criminalized, as being more aggressive, it's a message that we constantly see throughout the media that can inform the way that you do your job in the same way that that happens in classrooms with teachers who adultify black children or punish them more, more harshly. So although this, this study may not have explicitly said that it's about racism, I think when we do this analysis, we have to confront that. We have to unpack that. We have to talk about the different ways that that manifests because black people are disproportionately profiled and we die because of these encounters. And we'll see if police departments will be able to use this research and if they're able to make any inroads into different police departments. Thank you all very much. We'll be right back. All right, we have a sneak peek of the new Barbie movie hitting theaters soon. So here's the plot. Barbie and Ken leave the perfect pink world of Barbie land and get a taste of life here in the real world. They get arrested... Teenage girls want nothing to do with Barbie, and she kicks off her high heels for Birkenstocks. Weird Barbie, played by Saturday Night Live alum Kate McKinnon, pushes Barbie to experience the real world. What do I have to do? You have to go to the real world. You can go back to your regular life, or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel. You have to want to know, okay? Do it again. Closer I am fine. Closer I am fine. I'm coming with you. Okay. (laughs) Are Birkenstocks, is that what represents the real world, Hori? Uh, it, apparently, it, it means knowledge and your willingness. <laughs> People of Seattle are very happy to hear that. But, right. uh, Barbie was overdue for parody. I think it was time. I, I think it's brilliant, though. Issa Rae, I saw, was in it. You know, the diversity of the yeah. the Barbies that do different things. That's just, it's it's more real as to the point of the, the film, that there's a real world where women are complicated, girls are complicated, they have different interests, so I, I like it. I like the direction it's going in. I mean, the fact there's a diverse range, not only racially, but of body types that play Barbie and Ken. I mean, if I think a movie is going to lead to a Florida school board hearing, I'm all about it. 
I want to watch it immediately. <laughs> and yes, I feel that you're right. That is exactly where this is headed. Yeah, right. This is, like, <laughs> this is too subversive. Right. <laughs> for whatever you're going to show in your fifth grade classroom, they cannot see this kind of parody. Um, all right, you guys, thank you. Great to have you here. Oh, Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. All right, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories that they're working on for tomorrow. They're coming out right now, and they'll share it with all of us. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters here with me tonight. We have Bryn Gingras, Harry Anton, Omar Jimenez, and Elena Treen. Also joining us from Pittsburgh tonight is Danny Freeman. So the death penalty trial of the accused mass shooter in the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre began today. 50-year-old Robert Bowers is accused of killing 11 worshipers at the Tree of Life synagogue in October of 2018. Danny Freeman, as I said, is in Pittsburgh covering this trial. Bryn is following the rise in anti-Semitism across the country. We'll get to that in a moment. But Danny, we'll start with you. So tell us how prosecutors laid out the case during this first day today. Well, Allison, basically prosecutors tried to establish one primary thing, not just that Robert Bowers was the person who fired indiscriminately into the synagogue, killing 11 Jewish worshipers, but also that he did so specifically because they were Jewish and he did so in a truly horrific way. And we did learn new details today just about how violent and really seemingly intentional this shooting was. The prosecutor said that Robert Bowers went through the synagogue methodically going room to room and in their words, hunting Jewish worshipers. Now, after a while, law enforcement did come in. SWAT team members engaged in a shootout with Mr. Bowers. They were able to get him to surrender. But it was during that point when he was surrendering that a SWAT officer asked Robert Bowers, why are you doing this? Why did you do this? And the prosecution entered this today that Mr. Bowers' response was, quote, all Jews need to die and Jews are killing our kids. So that's really what the prosecution is saying. Now, Allison, I should say the defense in this particular case, they're not disputing that Robert Bowers killed these 11 people. The defense said that uh, these actions were incomprehensible and inexcusable, and there's no question that it was a planned attack. But that main defense attorney, Judy Clark, today, she really said that the jury's job in this case is to see if, in her words, Bowers' irrational motives and misguided intent, if those actually apply to the 63 federal charges that Mr. Bowers is facing. So it was an intense day in court. We got both opening statements from uh, the prosecution and the defense first thing this morning. So, Danny, right after that shooting, I went to Pittsburgh, right to that same neighborhood where you are, and I went to a Shabbat service and I, um, the rabbi there, Rabbi Jeffrey Myers, is so kind and warm. And I met so many of the congregants and it was really they really welcomed me and it was a beautiful co- community. And so tell us, were they there in the courtroom today? I mean, what was it? How emotional of a day was it? Have you been talking to the people who went to the Tree of Life synagogue? Yeah, Allison, I got to be honest, it was a very hard and emotional day in court. Uh, And I think that it was a day that maybe some people weren't expecting because it was supposed to just be opening statements. But we did get some witnesses, including Rabbi Myers. I'll get to that in just a second. But one of the things that we heard from three witnesses called today were 
911 calls that we have not heard prior to this moment. And we can't release those specific 911 calls uh, to you or to the public right now because they're too graphic. That's a court order. But I want you to listen to some uh, past 911 calls from this same incident that'll give you a bit of an idea of the tone of the calls that we heard in court today. Take a listen. I got one alive. Three back in one right now. Still alive. We have a beach dog. Four down in the atrium. DOA at this time. Was there earlier intel that you may be in the basement? I had a report of at least one victim in the basement. Five additional four victims. Four victims. Second atrium off the front hall. Total of eight down, one rescued at this time. Now, Allison, you mentioned uh, Rabbi Jeffrey Myers. He's the rabbi of the Tree of Life Congregation. Uh, he took the witness stand today, and we actually had a chance to hear the 911 call that he made while the shooter was inside of the synagogue killing other members of his congregation. And it, it, it's really chilling, Allison, because you hear him incredibly composed on the phone talking to the dispatcher saying exactly what the address of the synagogue is saying exactly where he is where other members to the best of his knowledge is and you can hear the gunfire all the while while he's on the phone in the background and then he goes silent for a good period of time and the dispatcher says are you there you know can 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 you hear me uh and he still says silent and today in court rabbi myers was asked why did you go silent for those few moments and he responded because i was praying and he said i expected to die and at that point he was deciding whether he should stay on the line with 911 or perhaps call his wife uh and again to your initial question just a terribly emotional day today in court. And Allison, this was day one. Mm. Uh, Danny, stand by if you would, because I'm sure that um, the rest of our panel has questions for you. Um, Yeah, Rabbi Myers is really a special person. I'm sure you guys remember him being on our air. He's like a combination of incredibly, an incredible great leader and like uh, so compassionate and empathetic and yet stoic, you know, um, and able to lead everybody through this nightmare um, but it just brings it all back. I, I don't know if you remember wh- where we were all reporting when this happened, but it was an awful day. Yeah, and it's really the incident that always, when you talk about anti-Semitism, it sort of goes back to the most extreme incident um, that people reference, right? I mean, you, Danny did such a great job describing it because it just evokes so much emotion about how extreme this actually went to. But, uh, you know, we've been talking about the the rise of anti-Semitism. The ADL has been tracking it for more than a decade. And just within this last year, there have been 3,700 incidents of, you know, vandalism, attacks, extreme incidents like shooting. Is this like more than, say, two years ago or three years? Is it getting worse or it's is it... Getting, le- it's getting exponentially it's worse. Getting it's exponentially a third every It's a third higher than the incidents tracked last year. And again, it's a, it's a wide range of incidents that are tracked by the community members, like the rabbi, by the police, by victims who are reporting these incidents. Uh, but the point is, it's getting... Just it's just growing, and it's growing to numbers that the ADL has never seen before. And the, also the worst, if you look at those at those years of where this increases... Of course, what do you see in there? COVID, right? That's when everybody was getting online and sort of getting sort of indoctrinated into these sort of chat rooms. And you, ha- if you had a particular view or you had a particular hate, uh, it sort of grew. And, and, and that's where these reports are still kind of growing in, in exponential numbers. But some of these incidents that we're looking at, you look at New York. New York actually has about uh, 15, 16 rather, percent of the total incidents across the country 
mainly sort of the epicenter of that is in Brooklyn, where there's a large Orthodox Jewish community, where it's very easy to target members of this community. So we are seeing a lot of, or ADL rather, are seeing a lot of those incidents there. Uh, But yeah, sorry, just took down the graphic, but I was going to read that. But you see, it is happening all across the country. Yeah. And I remember, you know, when this happened, I actually was out there uh, reporting, responding to to that breaking news. And um, I mean, like in so many of these cases, there were members of the community community there that felt, one, okay, they're reacting to the tragedy of this itself. Then it's the message behind this shooting, the anti-Semitism as part of it. And I, I took this picture in, in one of the yards uh, that was right nearby. It was Halloween time, and people had carved into their pumpkins stronger than hate because they felt that despite the tragedy that had happened here, we need to take a stand against the the evil that is this person, that is this shooter, that this shooter has inflicted upon our community. And so I, I just wonder, in cases like this, obviously there's a legal proceeding going on, and that's that's in one side of things. But but how important is it in all of these communities for for them to come together and say? Despite what happened, we yeah. have to move forward stronger together. Well, that's the conflict that these victims for the Tree of Life synagogue were going through, right? Yeah. Because the this he was offered life and he wanted to take a life in prison sentence, right? And they were they went forward with the death penalty, which was not an easy decision for these victims' families to make. But they said they needed to come together, they needed to stand up against this hate, and they needed to, quite frankly, have their day in court. And this is going to be an issue that we're going to continue to track because we do see so many instances where it's sort of on the um, fringe of of sort of anti-Semitic, right? We saw the former president dining with a Holocaust denier. We've seen uh, members of Congress making anti-Semitic remarks, and that's only also going to get worse. So the point is, when it happens, everyone does need to come together, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish, and stand up against it and just make it clear that it's not okay. Yeah. I would just say, you know, this is obviously a culmination of what happened in Pittsburgh, but, you know, it's truly when you're on the subway and maybe you don't want to wear a Jewish star, maybe you don't want to wear a yarmulke, maybe you don't want to be seen in a Jewish deli, maybe it's, you know, just wearing a Star of David t-shirt, right? It's these small things that are truly the things that worry me as a Jewish American, because that's, I want to be who I am, and I want to be proud of who I am, and I don't want to be scared of who I am. And, you know, an event like Pittsburgh, horrendous as it may be, is just, just a small part of the apple, right? Mm-hmm. It's the ability to live on and move on and remember. And when you're afraid of going outside and, you know, sort of exploring and showing off your Jewish pride, that to me is what's so worrisome and why the statistics that you were just citing are so worrisome. Because it's not always going to be this one huge violent event. It's going to be these smaller events that are going to make somebody, you know, say, maybe I don't want to go outside today or maybe I just don't, I want to hide my Judaism. And that to me is something that's truly scary because in all honesty, I thought we had left that behind. And what I realize is perhaps we never really leave hate behind. We can try and squash it, but we can never truly get rid of it. Have you felt any more nervous with all of these, the um, upward trend of all this tension? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do feel a little bit more worried. I'm not going to say that I'm running around scared. That would be a, a false statement. But I will say, you know, maybe I don't want to travel to that part of the city where I know there aren't that many Jewish people. Maybe I'm going to stand out. And that might make me a target. You know, I look, we they all have, you know, stereotypes of, you know, what Jewish people look like. And Jewish people can look like a lot of different things. But I will say, you know, oftentimes when you run into some more orthodox folks on the street, some 
Hasidic on the street, right? And they might say, oh, is he one who, you know, they, they try and, you know, tie your hands around the whole thing. Um, you know, I sometimes do get pulled out. And I take it as an honor, but I'm worried that somebody who doesn't have good intentions might see that and might try and do something. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that is something that goes through my head for sure. Yeah, how could it not? Yeah, it, it is interesting, all the, the, the messaging events, because, I mean, look, we cover a lot of these, these mass shootings, these, these horrific events, and in the moment, the details are horrific. Mm-hmm. Just, you can leave them there. But it's then those reverberations where, as you mentioned, it's, it's those tiny things of, you know what, I don't really want to wear this, this memorabilia, or, you know, this, a Star of David, or this, I don't want to give away mm-hmm. a piece of who I am to mm-hmm. someone on the street. Mm-hmm. I want to just go to where I am. And then once I feel I'm in a safer environment or in whatever, I can be more of myself. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just think that's a point that, that extends to a lot of cultures, a lot of places, but it is blown up by these, these mass violent events that, that we see. Friends, thank you very much for sharing all of that. Danny, thank you. In Pittsburgh, obviously, we'll be watching the trial very closely. Okay, now to this. Ron DeSantis is on the campaign trail tonight in Iowa. But what role does Iowa really play in our presidential politics? It may not be what you think. Harry has been digging into this for us, and we'll discuss next. Presidential candidate Ron DeSantis making his first official campaign stop in Iowa tonight. He slammed the current direction of the country and took a dig at former President Trump and what he called the GOP's culture of losing. We must put an end to the culture of losing that has infected the Republican Party of recent years. Not in Iowa, not in Florida, but in way too many places. The tired dogmas of the past are inadequate for a vibrant future. All right, Harry Anton is crunching the data around the Iowa caucuses. So, Harry, let's start there. How important is Iowa nowadays? God, I love this time of the year (laughs) when the campaigns are getting going. Everyone seems to have a chance. And, you know, the truth is, if you look back at the polling at this particular point since 2004 and you projected out who's going to win the Iowa caucuses, turns out the polling at this point isn't all that predictive, which makes it so much fun, right? Only one out of seven of the polling leaders at this point have gone on to win the caucuses since 2004. Hillary Clinton in 2016 was the only one. one. Remember, she barely won it. She barely won it. Of course, DeSantis wants to win in Iowa. He believes that's the place he can stop Donald Trump. The question is, if you win in Iowa, does that mean you can actually go on to win the nomination? And what we know since 2004 is, in fact, only three of the seven folks who were the Iowa caucus winners, went on to become the uh, nominee. In fact, none of them on the Republican side. So I would caution. But the last one was George W. Bush. That's correct. George W. Bush. Last Republican to win Iowa and win the president. Correct. Uh, That would have been back in 2000, right? He won in Iowa. Um, But here's the thing that I will point out, right, which is there are two early contests we pay a lot of attention to, right? Iowa and New Hampshire. And remember, George W. Bush ran into a wall in New Hampshire known as John McCain back in 2000. So if you go all the way back since 1972 and you look, okay, how many (laughs) folks actually won the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary? Turns out there have been only very few. Three out of 17 since 1972. Jimmy Carter did it in 1976. Al Gore did it in 2000. And John Kerry did it in 2004. So look, 
I don't know if Ron DeSantis is going to go in and win the Iowa caucuses. We know Donald Trump's winning, leading in Iowa right now, leading in New Hampshire right. But I would be very surprised if there isn't a strong challenge in at least one of those states, because the fact is Iowa and New Hampshire like to mess things up a little bit. They don't like a straight road for any particular candidate. Hmm. But if you had to pick just one, should you put all your eggs in the Iowa basket or the New Hampshire basket? If you're a Republican, I would put my eggs more in New Hampshire than in Iowa based upon who we've seen win the last few times. Remember, in 2008, Mike Huckabee won in Iowa, did not go on to win the nomination. Rick Santorum won in Iowa in 2012, didn't go on to win the nomination. Donald Trump excuse me, uh, Ted Cruz won in Iowa in 2016, didn't go on to win the nomination. You know who did go on to win the nomination all those years on the Republican side? The people who won the New Hampshire primary. So I would look more towards New Hampshire on the Republican side than look to Iowa. Mm -hmm. Iowa tends to have a few too many evangelicals, a few too many very conservatives who tend to be out of step with the rest of the Republican Party. But of course, 2024, it's going to be a new year. We just have to wait and see what happens. <laughs> but I mean, as you guys know, um, Ron DeSantis did launch his campaign tonight. Well, I should say the big first speech mm-hmm. at a mega church in Iowa. He had a meeting with evangelicals. Um, so he's playing that that Iowa card that you say is the most successful. If you're going to go to Iowa, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, look, uh, people in Iowa like you playing on the ground. Uh, I will say that the early state numbers for Donald Trump in Iowa or New Hampshire, especially in Iowa, don't seem to be nearly as strong as they are nationally. There hasn't been a whole lot of nonpartisan polling going on. But we do know that Iowa has lifted up some people who truthfully really weren't on the national radar at this point. I mean, Mike Huckabee was polling nowhere in 2008. Rick Santorum was really polling nowhere in 2012. I mean, he literally launched in like the final month. But at this particular point, if the national race continues to be this blowout, right, with Donald Trump way ahead, I'm not really sure it's in the cards for DeSantis or anybody else to win Iowa. But if it gets a little bit closer, Iowa could play the role of upset maker. I think it's a lot as well about momentum. Like, I know, obviously, Ron DeSantis, he's not just targeting Iowa. He's looking a lot of his earliest campaign stops are going to be in these key presidential primary states. I also know from my discussions with people close to Donald Trump and who are working on his campaign that he's been very active in targeting getting endorsements and fundraising and making a lot of campaign stops as well in these early states like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, the ones that matter. Again, I agree with Harry that it doesn't predict if if you win in Iowa or you win in New Hampshire, it doesn't predict who's going to be the nominee. But I think at this point, it's a lot about the momentum. It's a lot about who are people talking about. And I think for DeSantis, he's finally gotten into the race. This is his first big presidential campaign event. I mean, especially after the botched rollout of his campaign last week on Twitter, his campaign is very eager uh, to put on a good show in Iowa. And I think that that's what they're attempting to do. I will say it's interesting, though, now that he's in the race, we're seeing this really aggressive back and forth between him and Donald Trump. And it's, I mean, Donald Trump's team has said, Iowa, I mean, it's clear what he's doing, but Donald Trump's team is doing the same thing by trying to target Iowa as well. And I think that we're going to continue to see these candidates all go to these early states, all try to court the same type of voters. And I do think it will be interesting to see who can get, you know, the share of voters in Iowa and in these early states. We've only talked about 
two names at this point, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And there are others that have announced there are for president. Exactly. And, you know, we're also going to Iowa and exactly, these other Tim Scott, also, Yeah, Haley. Tim Scott, yeah. Nikki Haley. There are others in the mix that could potentially announce, including, you know, rumors have been around Chris Sununu, New Hampshire governor, but also a big one. Um, you know, there have been talks about Chris Christie potentially getting in the race. And I, I can tell you, I've spoken to, to people in his camp. They're, they're trying to put together some final pieces, no official announcement yet, and uh, some of his allies put together a super PAC. And so that is really the most concrete step we've seen to sort of the groundwork being laid. And he hasn't shied away from talking about it before. And sources close to him have told me that if he gets in the race, Chris again, if, if Chris Christie gets in the race, then he doesn't see a path around Trump. He says his path would be through Trump. And he hasn't been shy. He has about not been shy about Trump. that. Chris Christie has not. And it's interesting now Ron DeSantis is not being shy about that. I do find it interesting when you listen to Ron DeSantis tonight, though, just the language, how close it is right. to Trump. It is so fascinating just sort of being an outsider. And, like, I'm, again, not a big political person. It's just so interesting how any, you know, particular person who's going to vote that way how do how do they differentiate? But is it? I mean, is Ron DeSantis calling people names and stuff? Like, what part reminds you? He doesn't you have taglines for people, but just like I don't know, just like infected and like these words that you're just like, Ugh. like I, I don't it, know. Like, I they think just, it's on purpose though. Hundred uh, percent. Like, he wants to be Donald Trump without the baggage. A lot right. of these candidates. I mean, if you right. look at all of these candidates. As well, many of them, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, a lot of the policies that they're proposing and they're putting forward are ones that Donald Trump also supports and has put forward, except they're trying to be, say that they have more reasonable rhetoric. They don't have, you know, the controversy surrounding them that obviously the former president does. All right. I, I was just going to say, just quickly. to quickly end it, who's the most popular politician in the Republican Party right now? It's Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So sure. that's why they want to they be as close to him as possible Without actually being him, and maybe if something happens, maybe in one of these, you know, investigations involving Trump, they'll be there in case he falls by the wayside of the show's a little bit of weakness. All right. Thank you all very much for the numbers and the perspective. Meanwhile, the House will take a final vote tomorrow on the debt ceiling bill. But Speaker Kevin McCarthy has a lot of work to do before then. And Elena has new reporting for us. Well, the debt ceiling bill is inching closer to a floor vote, but the fight is not over for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He still needs to wrangle wayward Republicans to get behind the bill. And Elena is on this story for us. So at the risk of introducing math into this hour, do you have any idea how many Republicans are still not going along with this or how many he needs or just how close he is? Yeah, well, so it's interesting. Normally, when we look at you need 218 votes to pass a bill in the House. Um, McCarthy has a five-vote majority, essentially. But normally that matters because a lot of these bills are more partisan and you're trying to force them through without the other party. Um, This bill's different. This is an agreement that was worked out by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden. And so the expectation is that a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats will come together and vote for this. And as of now, from my conversations today and and what we're hearing from members on Capitol Hill, that's still expected. But there is a huge issue as well. McCarthy is facing a near full revolt from a lot of the far right members of his party who think that they were betrayed by McCarthy, that he made promises to them, particularly around the speakership vote. There's these 20 Republicans who tried to sink. I know we covered this in depth um, in January, tried to stop him from becoming speaker, who he made all these, you know, 
backroom deals with. And now they're saying, hey, you're going back on your word. Um, and they're threatening to potentially oust him from being And it only speaker. takes one. Is it true? Like, do, it is. One that was an agreement. One call for a vote on him or can call for his head to oust him yeah well it's it's to, it's formally a motion to vacate the yes. chair but yes to oust him from being speaker that's an agreement that mccarthy agreed to in january he said it would take one member to do that um and now they're threatening to hold that but let's listen we have some sound from the members the republicans today who were talking about their criticism mccarthy let's let's hear that sound majority of Republicans are against a piece of legislation and you use Democrats to pass it, that would immediately be a black letter violation of the deal we had with McCarthy to allow his ascent to the speakership and it would likely trigger an immediate motion to vacate. How much confidence do you have in the speaker right now? None. Zero. What basis is there for confidence? We will continue to fight it today, tomorrow, and no matter what happens, there's going to be a reckoning about what just occurred. But he's not going to lose a majority of Republicans. Well, that's, what's right? gonna, that's not what the numbers suggest. No, and that's what I was going to say. We're here. A lot of these members are part of the Freedom Caucus. They're, again, some of the most far-right members in the Republican Party. And they're often the loudest members of the party. So I think if you're watching this and you're hearing what people are saying, these Republicans are saying it sounds really bad. But most likely... McCarthy will get the majority of the majority. If you look at the data, if you looked at past votes, he, I mean... I think more than 90 percent. I know you were talking about this earlier tonight, Harriet, like more than 90 percent of Republicans tend to vote with McCarthy uh, on every vote so far since he's been speaker. So he keeps saying that he's confident. Um, And I should also just add that it's not just McCarthy's problem. Biden is also facing and Democrats are facing a tough problem with this bill as well. I mean, this bill is something that neither side is happy about. Republicans think it is extending the debt ceiling for too long into 2025. There's not enough spending cuts in it. Democrats are saying they're against the work requirements for some of these social um, welfare programs, as well as um, the energy permitting provisions in it. And so I don't want to get into it too wonky, but neither side's happy. Is this the first time that one of those backward deals could bite him in the butt? Yeah, it actually is. So honestly, it's one of the biggest tests for McCarthy so far as speaker, another one was when they were um, trying to pass their immigration bill a couple weeks ago. But um, he really has had so far, I mean, I know it's only, we're about to be into June. It's only been a couple months since he's been speaker, but he's kind of had an easy go at it. There haven't been a lot of these really controversial fights. Debt ceiling is by and far the biggest and hardest decision that he's facing and, and potential revolt that he's facing now. Um, and also with that backroom deal, I mean, there is some discrepancy over it. One of the Republicans that we just heard, T- Chip Roy of Texas, had said that, I, again, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but uh, there's the rules committee and they have to get it through that. And then they can vote on the bill. It passed out of rules tonight. But there was apparently an agreement about the number of people of Republicans on the committee that McCarthy, that would need to support this bill that McCarthy had agreed to. And there's confusion over that. Again, I don't want to get too but it's clearly into it to here, follow him. but I mean, it is coming into effect yeah. now. And it's also drawing, I think, you know, criticism from both, you know, some of the more moderate members who are saying that. So it, it's it's very fascinating to watch this play out and see the internal fighting that's happening over this bill. And and really, a lot of these people who detest McCarthy wanting to make good on some of the threats that and, they we just heard. And was this, I mean, just to both of your points, was this not a scenario that in some ways was anticipated? I mean, we were, the attempts yeah. for Kevin McCarthy <laughs> to be voted as speaker over and over and over and over again was an attempt by 
his side to wear down the critics. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, and it really was a political stance to say, we're not backing down from you, from some of these very same members who are are speaking up now. So is this the dynamic that will now be the realities of governing as speaker um, when we move forward into some of these fights? Because that's what it seems, at least from from my point. No, it's a great question. Capitol Hill. Yeah, I think it's not about... I think the new norm in the sense of how Congress will always operate, I think the issue here is how narrow of a majority mm-hmm. that Kevin McCarthy has. Um, they, you know, did, they underperformed in the midterm elections. They still won the majority, but again, they only have about five seats, depending on how many people are in town, um, five votes that they could lose to get any bill forward. And that's why so many of these far-right members are able to hold him hostage in some sense on a lot of these things and why McCarthy has had to work very hard to make sure he's giving concessions for some of the more far-right faction of his party because he doesn't have a lot of room to move on a lot of this. Again, this is a little bit different given that he is they're likely going to have Democratic votes, but that's not something that I think McCarthy wants to be talking about, that he's relying on Democrats to get this bill through. Yeah. It just sounds like a compromise to me if everybody's so upset. Shh, I mean, don't say a bad word on television. <laughs> That's what Washington, D.C. treats compromise as, a dirty yeah. word. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Democrats are upset. The Republicans are upset. It actually seems like it might be a fair deal for <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, it depends on who you ask. There's yeah. a lot of angry people. and I, But it is funny. Again, the loudest people are the ones who are getting the attention. And it's the progressives and it's the Freedom Caucus, you know, more radical Republicans in Congress who we're hearing a lot of this angst from. Well, I mean, I don't want to say it's a done deal because anything can happen tomorrow, <laughs> but it sure feels closer than we have in months. I think we can all expect this to pass through the House tomorrow. Got it. Yeah. Okay, Elena, thank that. you very thank much you. for all of that. Meanwhile, the Boston Celtics falling short of a record comeback. The Miami Heat advanced to the NBA Finals and Omar was at the game. He's going to tell us all about it. <laughs> and that's one reason that Eric Spolstra will be going to his sixth NBA Finals in 15 years. Here comes Mike Muscala. He's in the game for the Celtics. Brown is out and done. And Boston is done. Finished. They were on the verge of a huge comeback, on the brink of NBA history, tying up the series after losing the first three games. But the Boston Celtics came up short in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Miami Heat. Omar was at the game. He's going to bring us all the blood, sweat, and tears. So what was it like? Um, look, heading into the game, it was electric. I mean, they, they were on the precipice of history. Coming into the game, there had been 150 attempts at coming back from a 3-0 deficit and 150 fails. Only now there's 151. But they didn't know that. They didn't know that at the beginning of the game. So at the beginning, they were... They were on fire. They were electric. They were making comparisons to the Boston Red Sox, who in 2004 came back from a 3-0 deficit against the Yankees. So everybody, you know, Boston doesn't like New York. They're all, this is it, this is it. Within the first two quarters of the game, it was very clear that Boston was not going to win this game. Why? Where, why were they, where would they go wrong so, after those three, that winning streak? So, one, my impression was they didn't have their rhythm right away, which sometimes happens in big games. You're so hyped up, you just need to calm down. And so I was giving them the benefit of the doubt there. The Heat didn't have that. They came out firing. They came out knocking everything down. They were in there. And every shift of momentum that seemed to go to the Celtics was answered right away 
by the Heat. And then another big moment. In the first literal seconds of the game, the Celtics' best player, Jason Tatum, who averaged 30 points a game this year, uh, went down with an apparent injury. And take a listen to what he said after the game about that moment. It's tough. Um, I, I, it's, it's as simple as that. It's tough, right? You made it to the conference finals again and so close to getting back to the finals and giving ourselves another chance. And uh, Yeah, I mean, as you would expect, it's tough to lose. And again, that, that ankle injury, at least that apparent, he played through it, but clearly was not himself. He only finished with 14 points in the game. I don't think he's processed it yet fully. Yeah. <laughs> he seemed at a loss for words there. Were the yeah. fans just deflated? Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. So as the game went on, uh, Boston's fan base, there, there are certain cities, Boston, Philadelphia, their fan bases are known for being very hot for you yeah. or very <laughs> brutal for you when you're losing. And I think Turn we in. saw a little bit of that when the Celtic, when it was clear the Celtics were going to lose, their own fans started to boo them at points. Uh, again, on the precipice of history, they came up short, their own fans were booing them. And we actually talked to some of those deflated fans after the game. We braved into those waters. <laughs> that is uh, great. And uh, take a listen to some of what they said. How are you guys feeling right now? Pretty terrible, honestly. Jalen Brown is leaving. He says the fans hate him. Houston's gonna give him the money, and JB's leaving. Mark my word. I just wanted to say on behalf of Boston, I'm... I wish my city had responded better. <laughs> so, look, that's a wide range. Uh, so you know, sad. I know. Fans are talking about, he was saying JB, Jalen Brown, another player on the Celtics. People are talking about, we've got to trade this. We've got to fire the coach. Things that you expect Let's afterwards. talk about the coach. So yeah. he was, is he like a wunderkind, like a young, was he a young so, guy? So Joe Mazzula is the coach. Uh, he just became a full-time coach for the Celtics this year. He had to come in as an interim after their previous coach, Ime Udoka, Udoka had to leave the team for uh, some uh, he did not act appropriately, I would say. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Um, and so it, it, this was really the first opportunity, though, for him to bring this team to the NBA Finals. And there was a lot of pressure on him as a first-time, full-time uh, head coach here. But I will say, we talked to some Heat fans after the game, too. Heat fans who flew in from Florida for, for the game, and they were a little happier. Take a listen to them. <laughs> We were on the plane on our first leg, and I looked at him and him, and I said, we're winning tonight. It's just, Spo knew in his press conference at the game, at the end of game six, that they didn't execute. And if they did, they were going to win, and win handily. So we were were very confident. We're going to tear them up like this. Chicken wings. The next one, we got them. We got y'all So, I don't know what's happening there. Omar. Yeah, you know, I, I know that you're going to translate it. I think. Well, I think the translation is a little bit of alcohol. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's. I think that's what what gets the people going a little bit in that situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it, it was a tough reality where for the Celtics fans and the Celtics organization. I think this year they were in the finals last year. It really was finals or bust this year, and they they got the bust. I was just going to say, you know, obviously the Heat still have to take down the Denver Nuggets. Yeah. And the Denver Nuggets are heavily favored in those NBA finals. My buddy John Laster, a big Denver Nugget fan, very happy 
Very yeah. happy that Miami won. He believes they're the easier opponent to take down. But we'll see if John has wow. a little bit well, more than yet coming to him. And so here's the, here's the thing. The Celtics did lose, but that really wasn't the story. The Heat yeah. won yes. this game. And give credit to the Heat here. They were a play-in team, which means they actually weren't officially in the playoffs to start this year. They lost the first play-in game. Then they won, got into the playoffs, took down the number one seed in the East, Milwaukee Bucks, the number two seed, Boston Celtics here. Now they're going on to take the number one seed in the West in the Denver Nuggets. And they have found a way to win every step of the way, even when they've been discounted. They've had players, one player who's undrafted, stepped up and uh, more than doubled his season in game average to propel them uh, to win. And again, this is they are going to be the first play-in team to make the NBA Finals. And yes, the Nuggets are favored. Which but is also yeah, also history. But yeah, yeah people, of course, people love a comeback. They do. Yeah. I mean, after yes. games, certainly Boston. Yeah, they love a comeback. Um, Omar, I think we it's also have a picture good. of you enjoying yourself. I'm told. <laughs> oh. Oh, um, yeah. oh, wow. Our job. I was, yeah. I was nervous. So you're like, picture of me enjoying myself in the game. What did I? Tough uh, gig. I know. Look, uh, we, we, uh, we cover a lot of sad stories and a lot of not-so-fun stories. Yeah. So the opportunities that I get to actually cover yeah. some fun yes. stuff. This, earlier this year, I got to, to cover in L.A. when LeBron James broke the all-time scoring record. Yeah. I remember that, too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little disgruntled the yeah. way you were here with yeah. Yeah. You I have want to get these Omar played basketball yep. in college. I you also played, played basketball yeah. in college. I'm just okay. letting CNN know. Yep. More than happy. Okay, this is your girl here for the next game. This is the pitch. Okay, we got you. We got it. I, th- I, think, Sorry. We, I, I had think the sport's it. big enough for both of you. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Um, yeah. I All agree. Right. All right, we have to go. Up next on The Lookout, our reporters tell us what stories they're looking out for on the horizon. And we're back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Omar, go. So I mentioned a little bit about it earlier, but allies of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie have launched a super PAC. And so I'll be looking to see whether any announcement for an actual When should we expect that? Look, it's hard to know. Uh, but we are in the danger zone, so to speak. So, <laughs> so we're going to keep an eye out. Uh, could be at any moment. We're, we're just going to have to see. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Elena. Uh, Senate races, similar vibes here. Um, Ohio Congressman Warren Davidson announced today that he would not be running for Senate in Ohio, and he was one of you know, big contenders there that a lot of people are looking for, the conservative tax group. Club for Growth wanted to endorse him. Um, But I will say it's a big boon to the NRSC. It's the Senate establishment uh, group that didn't want him to run. They want to endorse other people in Ohio. So I think this is the time they're going to see a lot of these Senate races take center stage. And even though it's 2024, everyone's looking at presidents, Senate races are also huge um, thing to, for us to be watching. Okay, thank you very much, Bryn. Yeah, so I'm looking for the uh, th- we announced uh, the announcement of an arrest of Eunice Dwumforge, who is a Republican council member in Sayreville, New Jersey. There was an arrest made that this case basically went cold and made a lot of headlines. However, when the Middlesex uh, uh, County prosecutor announced this arrest today, didn't really give any details, didn't take any questions about why this happened or any motive or what the connection was to this council member. Um, so I'm looking to see where when this extradition happens, because this person actually lived in Virginia, came to New Jersey, committed the murder, went back to Virginia. 
um, and then see the court filings and see exactly what happened there. Okay, thank you. I'm sure you'll bring that to us. Harry. You know, we had the unofficial start of the summer season with Memorial Day weekend. We will have the official start in one way on June 1st. Meteorological summer begins on June 1st. I'm going to take off this jacket, put on a nice T-shirt, run around outside and enjoy the warm weather that will be coming to us in the upcoming month. Because you're a frustrated meteorologist. The viewers should know that. Yes. (laughs) I I went to weather camp. I love the weather. (laughs) Fantastic. You're qualified. Thank you. All right, very good. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, the mayor of Kyiv joins live as Ukraine prepares for a major counteroffensive. Thanks so much for watching us tonight, and our coverage continues now. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.